Thanks for joining. We're going to continue discussions that we started previously looking at the myths and misconceptions, misinformation and disinformation that we get inundated with on a daily basis. We've talked about how we can go about being scientifically and media literate and how that can assist us with overcoming some of the myths and misconceptions that are out there. But let's go ahead and let's talk how we can walk through the various types of stories that we get in our social media that are filling us with this misinformation and disinformation that can lead to adverse effects on our overall health. Misinformation and disinformation has had dangerous and dramatic effects, dangerous and dramatic effects that have impacted numerous events across the globe. Reading a stream of steady misinformation and disinformation tends to lead to distrust and can perpetuate conflicts amongst friends, colleagues, and family members. But how can we weed our way through all of this disinformation and misinformation that we are presented on a daily basis? Well, let's talk about that. Warning. The following presentation contains information that might contradict what you have previously heard or believed to be true about how the human body works and contains material that is not suitable for closed-minded individuals. Enjoy. Before we get into the bulk of the discussion, just a couple of caveats. We will be uh, listening to some audio clips of advertisements. We will be listening to some audio clips of statements being uh, offered by uh, both reputable as well as disreputable uh, individuals. And when I say reputable and disreputable, I'm talking about their uh, credentials to discuss what they are offering in the topic that they are discussing. And so why do people believe the misinformation and disinformation that we are presented in a lot of the media feeds that we get? It kind of boils down to the fact that we want to find things that are of interest to us correct. We want the information that we think is correct to be correct. We have a confirmational bias in what information is being presented to us. And it doesn't matter how reputable the person is, how famous the person is, or what titles we like to give the person who's offering the information. We want to believe what, what is being presented to us is true and correct. And because we want to believe what is being presented to us is true and correct, we make an emotional investment into that information. We make an emotional investment into the information. And because we make an emotional investment into the information, it's going to take us a long time to be willing to accept that there is fallacy in the information that's being presented to us. And so how can we go about looking at the information without getting kind of pulled into this emotional investment that is possible when information is being presented to us? Whether that information is in the form of an advertisement, whether that information is in the form of written media, or whether that information is in the form of a podcast like what you're listening to. The first thing we have to do is we have to look at what is the information that's being presented to us? How is that information being presented? And is there validity and reliability to the information that is there? One of the findings in a study that is hopefully will be coming out in the next few months based off of research that I've been doing with some of my students and former students 
is looking at where we get our information and how reliable the information is in terms of our subjective rating of reliability and validity. And one of the things that we tend to do is we tend to overestimate the reliability and the validity of information based off of whether or not we agree with the information, not necessarily who is or who is presenting that information. And because we have this overinvestment on that information, that confirmational bias, we tend to provide an internal justification, an internal rationalization for following that information. This is where if we want to look at home remedies for uh, getting sick, the mom's treatments, the grandma's treatments. Most of the reason why those tend to work is not because of some pharmacological device, some drug that's in the mom's treatment or the grandma's treatment. There's not an active agent that's causing a resolution to the sickness. There tends to be the interplay between stress and stress response and inflammation and disease onset that gets lessened when we utilize these home remedies, this comfort food. And because of this, we tend to perpetuate the mythos that this kind of food somehow has some medicinal effect to it. And part of that lies into what we've previously covered in terms of the want to have a causal relationship between things when it's more of a correlative relationship between things, along with the impact of the Hawthorning or the Hawthorne effect, sometimes referred to as the placebo effect, that these home remedies might have on our overall performance, our overall health. With that in mind, let's go ahead and let's take a look at some of the uh, advertisements and pitches and uh, quick statements that get used as justification for using distinct types of activities or diets or dietary supplements in an effort to become healthier that does not logically flow with what we understand about the science of the human body or the science of how to be healthy. And so we'll start looking at a couple advertisements from things that student has pointed out to me called Huel and called AG1. And let's see if we can figure out what is the marketing pitch and what might not be actually true, whether there is misinformation or disinformation that is being presented without going into a long diatribe about the supplements and what they're trying to sell. Yes, this is green, but it's way more than greens. What you really need to know is that this gives you daily nutrients and supports long-term gut health. There are 75 of the very best ingredients in AG1, including daily multivitamins, pre and probiotics, stress adaptogens, and more. All in one single scoop that's powerfully simple. It's AG1. Get yours today. Nutritious food is vital for a happy, healthy life. So what we need is a meal that is both nutritionally complete and convenient. A food that has the right amount of protein, fats, carbohydrates, vitamins and minerals. We are proud to introduce the latest Huel product, the Huel Ready to Drink. Huel has all essential vitamins and minerals, 20 grams of plant-based protein, essential fats, soluble and insoluble fiber, slow-release carbs, and phytonutrients, which is the good stuff from plants. Available in smooth vanilla or sweet berry. So go ahead and pause right now, and let's think about what were some of the catchphrases that were presented in these advertisements that make it sound scientifically valid, but 
that aren't quite scientifically true or are misleading or could be thought about as being misinformation to the person looking at these products in terms of improving their overall health. So go ahead and pause, think about it, and then we'll come back and discuss. So we're back. And what were some of the key words and terms that you might've come across? Well, we got things like adaptogens, probiotics, green, plant-based, the essential amino acids, the essential fatty acids, the essential multivitamins, all of the vitamins and minerals that you need, just to name a few. And so you think about it and you're like, well, it sounds correct. It's got scientific words. It's got things that I've heard about that relate to needing to consume to keep me healthy. But what's the general idea here? What's the general pitch? What's the general uh, spiel that these companies are using as relates to their supplement? And it is a supplement. Well, Huel has this meal ready to drink idea, and we'll get to that meal ready to drink idea here in a second. But the idea here is that nutrition by itself is going to be the cornerstone for your overall health. And we know for a fact that nutrition is only one component in all of the components that lead to overall health. They're utilizing that oversimplification and big fancy words in order to fool you into believing that their message of health coming from their product is what is necessary for you to reach your overall health without taking into account the vast complexity of interacting factors that lead to overall health. The companies then rely upon the antidotes from their spokespersons, the hawthorning that can come about from believing that what I'm taking is going to lead to my overall health improvements as the cornerstone for their marketing pitches. This is where we have to take a step back and think about what logical fallacies might come about within their marketing. What logical fallacies might come about in terms of the presentation of information? And who is doing the presentation of the information? We have no credentials of anybody being offered. There's no background information of the authors for the statements that are being made. There is some evidence, and it's limited evidence in terms of empirical evidence, about these adaptogens leading to improvements. Most of the adaptogens that are discussed are the base chemicals that are being attributed to herbal responses in terms of herbal remedies as it relates to stress responses and the indication that the herbal remedies somehow have a lessening effect of stress and an improvement on stress responses for the person who is taking these adaptogens. Once again, we have very few studies that have actually looked at the adaptogens. There's very few studies that have actually looked at what is the dose responses that are necessary or if there is some sort of antagonistic effect that adaptogens might have on other things that we are consuming or agonistic effects on things that we're consuming as it relates to our physiological responses to various stresses that we might have and how we're responding to those various stresses. 
it could simply be the Hawthorne and or placebo effect that we have with the grandma's or mom's treatments to us getting sick and not actually have active pharmacological effects from the substances that are being touted as adaptogens. The other thing that tends to get ignored in many of these marketings is the indication of or the inclusion of secondary lifestyle behavioral changes and the compounding effect that changes of one behavior from an anti-health to a pro-health behavior has on other pro-health behaviors that you might exhibit. And so if I'm thinking that I'm taking something that's going to improve my health, I'm going to change other aspects of my life to make it more healthy. And so we cannot stipulate that it is this one thing and only one thing that's going to lead to improvements in overall health or subjectively sensing that they are feeling better. The other bit of misinformation and disinformation that's presented in these two advertisements is the indication of drinking being better than eating. And what we know is that when we process out all of the nutrients from food into some sort of slurry, some sort of powder, some sort of beverage, the availability of nutrients changes, the bioreactivity of nutrients change, the nutritional quality of the nutrients change. And so even if we're listing out all of these various vitamins, various minerals, various essential amino acids, various essential fatty acids, getting them from the powdered form as opposed to getting them from the actual food form changes how nutritious the foods might actually be. The other thing that particularly when we start looking at these meals ready to drink or these uh, shakes, whether it's the protein shake, the whey shake, the weight loss shake, the consumption of the liquid food will have an impact on the feedback regulation. That is, do I feel hungry or do I feel full in the person? And we know that based off of the feedback regulation, consumption of liquid foods have a shorter as a, have a shorter um, full effect relative to eating actual food. And so for people who might be taking the, the Huel ready-to-drink meal as part of a scheme to lose weight, and I'm not using scheme in a derogatory term, it's a scheme in terms of the idea of I'm going to use this as part of the plan, part of the program in order to lose weight. What it does is it does not lead to long-term feelings of full because I am not causing extensive amounts of digestion to take place, nor am I having long-term gastric motion, movement of the stomach and the intestines that leads to a negative feedback loop into my cerebral cortex, into my brain that says you are full, stop eating. And so when we start looking at a lot of these sales pitches about the consume these liquids in order to not eat as much, when we start looking at those those types of uh, drinks, it's based off of a faulty assumption. And the faulty assumption is if I am meeting my needs and most of the needs that are being advertised are not based off of nutritional balance needs, but based off of caloric balance needs off of the faulty assumption of a 2,000 kilocalorie, 2,000 dietary calorie balance point that not everyone in the population has, an error that gets compounded by using percentages of this 2,000 calorie per day diet coming from the macronutrients without applying the fact that we don't use all nutrients for energetic purposes. 
The last of the pitches that I want to uh, touch on right here, without once again going into the whole diatribe about what's being offered, is the idea that because it is plant-based, it's somehow better for you or more nutritious for you or has some beneficial uh, chemicals within it that you wouldn't get from a non-plant-based source. And once again, this goes into the, one of the fallacies that we have about the different types of diets and the fallacy that we get into when we start looking at diets through dogmatic principles and dogmatic credos and dogmatic tenets. The idea with both the HEAL as well as the AG1 is that plant-based is better than animal. And that is scientifically not true. So let's take a look at another advertisement. Uh, this one is for a program uh, called Vshred. I have previously uh, torn this one apart in a different uh, talk, different discussion. But let's see if we can think about what type of misinformation, disinformation is being presented in this advertisement. This is how to get in shape fast. Cardio burns fat, right? No, cardio actually burns calories, usually in the form of carbs in the bloodstream that are then replaced with the very next meal that you eat and stored as more fat. This is why when you even eat low calorie foods or run for an hour a day, it seems like you get softer, but you don't actually lose any weight. And this is one of the biggest reasons why most weight loss attempts fail within the first three weeks. If you think that I don't eat carbs, you're wrong. If you think that I spend three hours in the gym a day and I do regular steady state cardio all the time, you're wrong. That ain't how you lose weight. It's been the best shape I've ever been in my whole entire life, even in high school, and I played football. <laughs> you're jacked now. <laughs> Stop running on the treadmill every single day if you're trying to lose weight, or I'm gonna jump in this pool. What surprised you the most? How quick I was dropping weight. Muscles are starting to develop. I just feel unstoppable. My body turned into a Ferrari. Have you ever wondered what actors and actresses do when they have to get in shape really fast for a movie? Because I can promise you, it's not the same diet that you're following or the same training plan that you try. I went from 198 pounds to 128 pounds. V-Shred will give you results. It's phenomenal. The fat just started melting off, like literally melting. It was, it was insane to see, like even week to week, I was like, wait a second, my pants don't fit me anymore. What happened? They fit last week. I've actually had a lot of people just come up to me in person and ask me how to get in shape fast. Funny, it actually happened the other day. I was walking out of a Starbucks and this lady came up to me and she was like, how are you in such good shape? Is what she said. And so I actually said, hey, to save you the time, I have this link. It's gonna take you to a free body type quiz. It's a super simple quiz. You answer six questions um, and it'll basically just tell you exactly how to get in shape fast. So as we did with the previous turn, let's go ahead and let's pause for a couple seconds here and let's think about some of the misconceptions, some of the misinformation and disinformation that was just presented to us in that advertisement. And then we'll come back and talk about a few of the misinformations that's there. Once again, without going into the 45 minutes that I spent uh, talking about this previously. Well, we're back. Hopefully got down a few of the ideas. And here are some of the few ideas that lead to the misinformation that's being presented within that advertisement, which includes burning calories, carbs, fats, steady state, and steady state cardio. And then we get a whole bunch of antidotes, 
Antidotes that link to the idea about how quickly or not quickly weight loss can come about. And the fact that everything within the entire pitch is all about weight loss with the kind of underlying impression that weight and body composition is the indication of health or the indication of beauty or the indication of being appealing to somebody with the take on, oh, you look so fit story that came up at the very end of the pitch. As if body image is the indication of what you understand about diet, nutrition, and health. The person is advertised as a celebrity trainer. Once again, we don't get any credentials. We don't get anything that says this is the, the educational or academic background for the person discussing it. When we start looking at this, we have to think about, okay, what were some of the, the misnomers, misconceptions, misinformation as it relates to the idea around calories? Well, number one, calories can't be burned. Calories are simply this unit of energy. The other big misinformation that's out there is fuel utilization during exercise. And fuel utilization during exercise, the fuels that we use in order to get ATP back for the body, is going to be based off of the same fuels that we use for all energetic purposes. Carbohydrates, fats, and proteins in the form of amino acids. And for everything, we always start with carbohydrates and then work to the other fuel forms where we will start utilizing a maximum amount of fat as fuel source in a steady state or in a state where ATP demand is lower than normal, whereas we will utilize carbohydrates and amino acids when we are exhausting fuels in the form of in the need for amino acids or under high intensity exercise in the form of carbohydrates. Most exercise that we're doing is going to be utilizing carbohydrates. And when we do go about refueling after workouts, the carbohydrates that we consume will first go into storage as glycogen based off of how much glycogen is being depleted during exercise and then has the potential to become fat, yes, but not to the extent that is being kind of hinted at within the advertisement. The other misinformation that is there is the how rapid body compositional changes take. It will take for the majority of individuals six to eight weeks, with eight to 12 weeks being the normed average for individuals in the population, to see body compositional changes from utilization of diet and exercise. Why do people stop after three weeks? Well, it's not because of what they're doing. It's because of the goals that they're setting, which is something that was not even approached within the, the pitches. The program that is being sold is about dietary supplements. It's about a combination of dietary supplements with some exercise. And as uh, Sarah and I pointed out in our review paper on the dietary supplements for weight loss, they're not effective. They are not effective. Let me repeat this. They are not effective. They are less effective than simply doing dietary modification and increase in physical activity in the form of organized exercise. The other thing that is failing with terms of the misinformation and disinformation, as was hinted at earlier, is the fact that body image is not the indication of health, even though there is a vast bias towards 
distinct body images as an indication of unhealthiness, in particular people who might have a slightly higher amount of adipose fat tissue on their body. This tends to be more of a psychological appealing issue as opposed to a physiological health issue, even though accumulation of fat mass can induce, can cause, higher amounts of inflammation that can lead to non-communicable diseases. If I am active, regardless of how much fat mass I have, I will improve my overall health. If I can combine an increase in physical activity with a reduction of fat mass, I will guarantee an improved health outcome. But I don't necessarily have to have fat mass loss in order to improve overall health. If you'd like to hear more about this specific topic, I highly recommend listening to episode 18 of the podcast. So we've gone through a couple of different advertisements and we've looked at how we can break down the misinformation and disinformation that is being presented. But some of you might be thinking, well, I don't have the academic background that I have. That I have as a presenter here within the podcast. So how can I go about looking at this information and filtering through the misinformation and disinformation that might be there? Well, this is where we have to start looking at and relying upon our media literacy and our scientific literacy in order to make valid judgments about the information that's being presented. This is where we have to think about, is there a logical process of information being presented or am I being presented a biased perspective? This is where I have to look at the information and think about, is it too good to be true? Are they uh, selling too many benefits to come from a single thing? Where I have to do a little legwork maybe, where if I don't have the academic background of myself as the presenter here has on the topics, do a little legwork, go into the search engines. And by search engines, I'm not, I'm not talking about going in and using Yahoo or Bing or even Google in terms of the search boxes. This is where go ahead and go on to uh, the medical sites, go into the CDC, go into the National Institutes of Health, go into the search engine PubMed, or even utilize Google Scholar and do a search for the key terms that you keep hearing in these advertisements and look at what is there. And you think, oh, well, I can't get through the information. It's too dense for me. Well, I've offered you a way of doing that with the uh, discussion on how to go about reading and looking at the evidence. And when I start looking at what's there, don't look at the individual studies. Don't look at the, the studies based off of a single population. Use the review studies. The review studies tend to be a broader perspective and give you a more kind of global panoramic view of the topics and what we understand about the topics. And even if that seems to be a little bit difficult in order to kind of understand what's being presented to you, look at the Mayo Clinic, look at the Cleveland Clinic, look at the, those institutes, Johns Hopkins, in terms of what's being published and produced from those valid and reliable sources. Do they give you information that is in agreement with what's being presented, or are they giving you information that is counter to what's being presented? What is the consensus that's there? And once again, remember, the consensus is not a democratic vote. It's what does the majority, and by, by majority, we're talking about 95% and beyond, of the evidence points towards being correct about the information that's there as it relates to does this nutrient provide benefit? Does this exercise provide benefit? What is this supplement? 
what is this exercise program? What is this individual thing? And how does that individual thing impact my overall health, impact my physiology, impact my homeostasis, my ability to optimally perform and maintain my overall health? And when we become more uh, aware, when we become more alert to the misinformation and disinformation that's out there, and we can critically think through what's being presented to us, we will not we will not be susceptible to the misinformation and disinformation that's there. We will be able to have more intelligent conversations with each other. We will be able to have better conversations with each other, conversations that do not become contentious, where we are able to see both sides of arguments. As the adage is, is that if you want to have an intelligent conversation, you should be able to debate both sides of the argument. You should be able to cover both the pro and the con to the position that you are taking. Something that a lot of us tend to ignore because we want to be correct and we want to show that the other person is incorrect as opposed to taking the stance that I want to be educated. I want to have an intellectual conversation with people so that we can both grow in our intellectual curiosity. So misinformation, disinformation is something that we have to be aware of. We have to be alert. We have to understand that the bombardment of information and the reliance upon opinions as being facts has led to a gluttony of information that is out there. While some information is good, some information is bad. And we have to be able to work through the information that is available to us, critically think through that information, process out that information, be willing to use our literacy skills to determine the validity and reliability of that information so that we're able to utilize the information to better ourselves and better those around us so that we're able to determine is this the best advice? Am I giving good advice? Is this reliable advice? Is this valid advice? Or is there something better, more valid, and more reliable than what I have been relying on? Well, thanks for joining. Hopefully you got a little bit out of this conversation. I don't want to take it too long. I think 30 minutes is a good amount of time to use for this discussion. There is a lot more that's out there. I'm hoping to be joined by one of the people that do some work with me as we talk about some of the myths and misconceptions out there as it relates to health and medical issues for females, as well as issues for the female athletes, something we uh, briefly discussed as it relates to the uh, is or are ACL injuries more likely to occur in female athletes versus male athletes in the near future. Make sure you're given that uh, five-star rating. Make sure you've subscribed to all of the feeds on the podcast as well as on YouTube. Follow on Instagram as well as threads to get quick takes and postings. 